and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. On today's podcast, we'll discuss the impact of how advanced technology and innovation culture in China can impact business and consumers. This discussion will be done in context of a private VIP tour I recently had in Shenzhen, China, visiting Huawei Technologies along with Brett King and the president of Provoke Management, Jay Kemp. While our visit to Huawei was done knowing about recent U.S. government concerns about Huawei and political issues regarding China in general, we are provided exclusive access to their Innovation Exposition Center, their R&D campus, and one of their manufacturing facilities outside of downtown Shenzhen. I'm very excited to have Brett King on the show today to discuss our two-day visit. You know Brett is a futurist, the author of numerous best-selling books including Bank 4.0 and Augmented, Life in the Fast Lane, as well as the host of the number one podcast in banking, Breaking Banks. Many of you have also seen Brett on stage as he travels the globe sharing the latest of what is happening in banking and tech. Hey, it's so great to have you on the show today, Brett. You are my first two-time guest, but I thought it was important for us to take time to discuss all that we saw last week in Shenzhen. It was a phenomenal visit. Um, you know, as I said uh, on on my podcast when when I was talking about this with you, Jim. You know, my first visit to Shenzhen was in 2001, and so even though it was your first visit there, every time I go back there, I see it with new eyes because it's just growing so incredibly. Well, you know, you're obviously, as you said, no stranger to the region, but why is it so important for people in our industry? to go to China, but even more importantly, specifically uh, Shenzhen. So, you know, e- even in the fintech space, you hear people talking about, for example, talking about the fact that I, I saw it with the played and the visa acquisition of played this week, people talking about how this is going to supercharge visas business and cards are back and, you know, the QR codes of the Chinese system can't compete. And that's a fair view from four years ago. But today, when you go to China, people aren't using QR codes. They're paying with their face. They're using artificial intelligence and facial recognition to pay for stuff, you know. And so the view that most of the West, particularly the UK and the US, has of China is that it's this economy that made its power by being the factory of the world and copying everybody and ripping off Louis Vuitton handbags and things. And and yet, when you go there today, They are the world's leading economy in artificial intelligence, technology development, innovation. They are an economy that's super competitive, far more competitive at a local and regional level than what we're used to seeing in the United States. And this drives incredible forces of innovation and the entire city has a culture of innovation that, you know, we just don't see in the Western world. So you can't really absorb that by you know, with respect, listening to a podcast or reading a tech news article, when you go there, it's a much more acute awareness of the fact that, oh, well, we are seeing the economy of the future here. Well, it's interesting because, as you said, you get in the city, it's only 40 years old. I think it's right around the age of Epcot. And so as I think about Epcot, and I remember that when you go in, you see the geodesic dome and it's like the city of tomorrow. 
We had the opportunity, the privilege of actually being invited to visit Huawei on a form of a VIP tour, media tour, where we're able to see some of the innovations and advancements that the company has made. And I'll tell you what, our perception of even the city of tomorrow pales by comparison to what we saw at Huawei, wasn't it? Absolutely. You know, Huawei built from scratch in five years this, you know, four square mile um, tech campus that has between the two areas of the campus, the sort of R&D labs and the actual manufacturing facility, what some 40,000 employees, they have accommodation for people. But as you said on my podcast when I interviewed you, or maybe it was Jay, that was it was like taking a visit to Disneyland because you have these different regions of Europe from a design perspective with these brand new buildings that were meticulously built. And you know, the build quality, very high, yeah, everything's super clean, and you feel like you're in in Italy, uh, you know, or, or uh, Bulgaria, or, or something like this. You know, visiting these cities, and you go through these different zones, and it feels like you're sort of on this hybrid between a European Disney tour and this technology organization. It's quite unique. But as a young person in Shenzhen, what a, an amazing uh, environment to be living and working in. Uh, you know. It's interesting because it's a fully functioning city of R&D people, which, you know, again, the scope of this is hard to believe. You, you know, at Huawei, they have room for 25,000 R&D employees there. But more importantly, it, it's a city in and of itself. So you have the living quarters. If you want to live there, they have living quarters for 10,000 people and their families. They have eating facilities within the buildings. And I think the one thing that caught us right off guard is it's just all just a facade because – we went a long way before we found another human being, more than just one or two walking the streets. And then we realized that in Shenzhen and almost everywhere in China, you have a, a 996 working environment, 9 to 9 and during the day, 6 days a week. And that with all the environmental things that go well for them, the, the cafeterias that even go as far as serving wine to the employees and the, the kind of foods, and it's all subsidized to some degree – there's no reason for these people to leave the buildings till the end of the day. And we, we were there in midday. And I think, the, in fact, I know the only Shenzhen or the only Huawei employees we saw were the trainees that were going through the streets. They're so, walking around, yeah. Yeah, getting orientation. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was an environment that, you know, you think about, you know, we asked them, why does this even exist? And, and very quickly they said, it's to basically encourage employees to work here and to live here. And, you know, there's such a competitive environment globally around trying to find R&D employees. But at Huawei, what's interesting is I found it very unique in that my whole tour of China, everybody related to the number of employees they had in R&D as percentages mm. as opposed yeah. to, oh, we have 150 people in R&D. No, they have 40% of their people at Huawei corporately are in the R&D area. And wasn't that something like very close to approaching 100,000 people, wasn't it? 96,000, yeah. And so, you know, let's take Apple. Apple outsources a lot of R&D to China. They'd certainly outsource production to China. But if you went to the Apple campus in Cupertino, and I don't know this for a fact, but my guess is you would probably not find similar ratios. You'd probably find more people that are involved in the brand of uh, Apple and maybe product development. Um, but, you know, I could be completely wrong on that. But certainly if you went to J.P. Morgan Chase, you wouldn't find 40% of their staff in R&D. And so, you know, this is a company that is 
building a structure to create the future and create future growth. And, and it was really impressive. Well, also it's interesting because not only do they have the R&D teams and working together and all that, but, you know, when you looked at it overall, they also had on campus a what's called the Huawei University. And what we have there is a situation where they have, I guess, it's 5,000 training classes that they put on regularly for employees to continually upgrade their skills. So really what they're doing, very much like Amazon's doing in the States, they're investing their own teams to keep them on board. And this is obviously not only recruitment capability, but a, a retention capability. No, absolutely. I can find some R&D expenses for Apple, but I haven't found the, uh, the number of employees working on it. But I think Huawei as a company, this illustrates the advantage China really has over the United States. You'd find the same with Ant Financial. You'd find the same with Alibaba. You'd find the same with Tencent. The one challenge that these companies have is they've come from a market that, while being super competitive and incredible development over the last 10, 20 years, has not been very outwardly focused. They're not being very global focused. So that's what's happening right now is you're starting to see these Chinese companies try to export themselves offshore, build brands offshore, and that's where they have a learning curve right now, but not on the technology development R&D side. It was truly phenomenal to see that. But it was interesting that when we spoke to the Huawei teams, there's still challenges in getting R&D staff. And so part of that was, as you say, the university from the ground up creating the skills that they need, but also Shenzhen as a city was very critical because it's the third largest city in terms of GDP now in China. And so attracting young people to Shenzhen is a big part of Huawei's success and Shenzhen's success. So Shenzhen has become the cool, innovative city. If you want a future, you know, if you're a student, you want a future in the technology space, you're not going to go to Shanghai or Beijing, you're going to go to Shenzhen. And that that's also a key part of the success of Shenzhen's story. Well, it's great because when we went to China, this was my first two day of a four day tour of China. And went from Huawei then to organizations that are in the fintech space, and I have another show that I've done on that visit. But I think what was interesting is at Huawei and at all the places we visited, you got the sense that the culture of the organizations kind of was built from the culture of China and of Shenzhen by itself from the standpoint of, as you mentioned, the focus on innovation and on technology and on on the acceptance of change. And I wonder, is this a foundation that gives Chinese companies maybe a, a very heavy competitive advantage in the marketplace globally where they're not having to completely convert mindsets into being change agents and being innovative and having a research and development background. This really is, is, for lack of a better term, born into the family, is it not? I think absolutely. And I, I think, look, over the last 10 years, 60% of spend globally on artificial intelligence has come out of China. You can see children being trained at a primary school level on basic artificial intelligence. You walk into the running joke when we we're there is you walk into the KFCs that are all over the place and you can pay with your face. You know, you can enter the border using facial recognition and biometrics, you know. So this feels like the future. 
when you visit there. But it's a grassroots movement that's happening at an economy level. And so you would not get in China the scepticism towards science and technology that we see, for example, in some of the Western uh, nations today. You would not get an argument over whether or not we should be using facial recognition for things like uh, security and for payments and things like that because of, of civil rights. Now, it's obviously, you know, from a governance perspective, it's a very different environment, but there's much less resistance to technology adoption and innovation than we see in the US as an example. And so that by its virtue is just going to push the gap, you know, between these two economies uh, harder and further. You know, China also is investing massively in retraining citizens for these new jobs. As you mentioned, Huawei is contributing to that uh, themselves, as is the government overall. We don't see a lot of preparation or forethought in that respect in the United States. So we know, for example, autonomous vehicles are going to dramatically disrupt transcontinental truck drivers in the United States, taxi drivers in the United States. We don't see a systemic approach to retraining these drivers to give them skills that are going to allow them to transition out of jobs driving vehicles into other industries. In China, we see that sort of investment in society. Yeah, and it's interesting because, as you said, that the cities are modern. The average age of Shenzhen is 29, I think our tour guide told us. And the average age of a lot of the companies we visited was even younger. So it's a very different environment. I, mean, I went to um, the tallest building in Shenzhen at Ping An Tower, and we were coming in at lunchtime, and everybody was checking out, going through the turnstiles, using their face. But when you saw people come down the escalators, I, I joked with Matt Dooley, who you know very well, and said, oh my gosh, we are twice the age of every single person we're seeing in this company. And, you know, it was interesting because when we went and saw the what I'll call the European campus, which was stunning in and of itself in that it's in the middle of, I won't call it nowhere, but pretty doggone close to nowhere— we then went from the European-feeling campus with a built-in university to do training of their own employees to the manufacturing plant. And that was a, a very different feel, not a European countryside feel, but much more of a manufacturing facility. But, boy, what an opportunity to go and actually see mobile phones being manufactured on a, on a production line that doesn't look like the production lines of the past, does it? No, uh, you know, from the ground up, there is a culture of improvement. And so you have, as we were discussing uh, on Breaking Banks, you know, they went from on one single production line, I think it was 80 employees down to 65, then now, now uh, 16 or 13, you know, depending on which uh, model of phone that they're developing. You can watch these phones spit out the end of this production line every 28 seconds. And you see on the wall um, these innovation awards given to individual staff members, and there's dozens of them up on the wall, where they've improved the process by one second or two second or three seconds on a net basis for an individual phone. And it's that cumulative approach to innovation that's a company mission that has revolutionized that factory floor. Some of it is really smart use of technology, like introducing robots to transport phones from one station to another, using 
using uh, image recognition to check the glue that's put on uh, the printed circuit board and things like that. Other elements of it, as you mentioned in, in the chat, was were gravity driven to move at the speed of the employee, how quickly they could respond to the production line and things like that. But it was everybody's mission to create these improvements. And while people knew that by making that improvement, it may end up in them losing their job on the production line, they had no fear that the company wouldn't look after them in that scenario. And so that's the systemic approach at a company level and at a city level towards innovation that we just don't see here in the United States. You know, you've got a lot of the banks laying off big numbers of staff, tens of thousands of employees as a result of automation. There's almost zero effort to retrain these people for different roles within the organization. You know, so this is chalk and cheese from what we see in the West right now. On our first day, we visited the legacy Huawei campus where there's a number of buildings, a lot of executives reside there, a little bit older, average age. But what was interesting is the first stop we made was to the Innovation Exposition Center that they've built to show off the different things they've done. And our first stop was to see the inner workings of the smart city, which basically is Shenzhen. But what was interesting and what was pointed out from the very beginning is it really was a combination of technology, innovation, the use of the cameras, but also partnerships of a number of companies, many of them from the West, to make this all work. And a lot of them were companies that also are in the fintech space, the Tencent's of the world, the Alibaba's of the world, the Ping An's of the world, that are feeding data to make this smart city work. You and I just looked at each other, you know, because you think it's almost like animation that you thought it was, you know, maybe just staged for us. But then we realized this was real. This was this was happening right in front of us. Yeah. What what impressed you? Because, you know, I know you visit a lot of places, but I think this was something new to you. What, what was your impression of that, even just the smart city and also the things they showed us around smart manufacturing and energy, things of this nature? Well, you know, I wrote about smart cities extensively and augmented. And so you're actually seeing the culmination of many of these technologies coming together here. But it was operational. That was the thing. You're not talking about technologies they might deploy in the future. These are technologies that were actually in operation day to day and saving people's lives. One of the examples was they're using uh, image recognition on motor vehicles to see who wasn't wearing seatbelts. Now, they didn't find these people, they just simply sent them a message using you know, facial recognition technology again and said, um, yeah, we saw you weren't wearing your seatbelt on this drive on this date. Could you please uh, address this? Otherwise, we may have to take action in the future. And overnight, you see uh, the number of people uh, wearing seatbelts goes up 80%. You know, And so you've got some real things happening. Emergency services deployed in real time. Being able to divert traffic using traffic lights and detouring systems that are automated based on uh, accidents. Calling out emergency services like fire engine 
engines and ambulances on an automated basis. The resource management of that city is so efficient and so optimal based on these technologies. Distributed energy grid systems where you have, we saw these rows and you remember one of the pictures I posted on Instagram, Jim, of rows and rows of factories with solar panels on their rooftops. And, you know, that's part of this city level energy schema where they have energy storage systems at a sort of a neighborhood level. They have solar panels, you know, and these renewable techs everywhere. And the grid is able to manage demand on a sort of active basis using AI technology. We have data center infrastructure that they, you want to deploy more uh, technology, they just drop in a shipping container with a data center into it, you know, and now um, you can sort of modularize these and put these things together. So you've got like the Dubai airport now that uses a data center produced by Huawei, where they just essentially dropped in, you know, 30 of these shipping containers to create this massive data center capability. It really is very impressive to see the way that they're using automation at a city level to create dramatically more efficient resource usage. So in the world of today, when politically big government and big spending on government isn't fashionable, there's a solution staring us in the face here. We can do much more for our citizens with more efficient use of resources by restructuring the way that we provide these services. And so in the end, you get where energy is essentially going to be almost free because we're just making a much more efficient usage of that resource at a state level. Well, interesting. At the foundation of everything we saw at Huawei was data and the analytics that can use data to drive good solutions. And, I, you know, both of you and I were sat down with people from Huawei and they were asking us about this. And, and I think it was stunning that we in the West, I think, view privacy in a very parochial way, which is not wrong. But I think what was interesting is I've always talked about the fact that privacy becomes an issue if there's not a good value transfer. And I think the the thing we saw in the Huawei Exposition Center was the fact that the deployment of results and of solutions based on data and technology made it so, as you mentioned, there's a better lifestyle. In many cases, there's a lower cost of services. We saw when we visited the fintech firms that allowed for a whole different level of inclusion where basically almost everybody in the marketplace was included in being able to do not only deposit services but lending services, borrowing. Because of the use of deeper data and the analytics capability of applying that and, as we saw, the partnering of multiple organizations to make this all work, I mean, the smart city is not about just driving traffic lights more efficiently or knowing about how strong your infrastructure is. We saw it making a difference in people's lives saving people's lives, being able to deploy services, being able to make it more efficient, but really within the context of knowing it was China, so we're not blind to this, but you look and you say, this is what can be done in the future if we put our resources toward it. And it doesn't come without a lot of investment, as we saw. No, and that's where... If you spoke about that sort of level of investment in the United States, for example, or, you know, in my home country, Australia, you'd initially get a great deal of pushback at, well, you know, um, 
why would we be deploying technology that could result in uh, lower employment in government, for example? And there's a big debate over whether we should do this. China says, you know, this is the right thing for citizens, but they have a systemic approach also to finding citizens' employment if they're disrupted by changes in the public sector, for example. And so they're trying systemically to make this shift. But ultimately, China knows that it has to create a better environment for its citizens. So when you see automation of cities, like the smart city stuff we're talking about, this is part of their drive to reduce poverty, increase quality of life for the average citizen, improve the economy. And so systemically, they approach this in in quite a different way from the way we do in the West. But it certainly seems to be working. And as you said, you know, the responsiveness of like emergency services to an incident like a motor vehicle accident, you're not going to find a better responsiveness anywhere in the world based on this use of technology. But it's a purposeful systemic shift. Well, this podcast is called Banking Transform. So we will get into the financial services then because we met with a number of the executives that are in Huawei's financial services sector. And and it's a sector that, as they mentioned, it was their fastest growing sector. It's the area they want to make even more of an impact, but really it's an area where they can deploy technology, their use of data and, and advanced analytics, and even their partnership with other companies to deploy solutions at financial institutions. And this is where I think it was most evident that Huawei has, is shifting very quickly from a what has traditionally been known as a manufacturing company to a solutions company. What was your takeaway from our meetings with the people that are involved in the financial services sector of Huawei? Jason Chow, who manages that, and then the strategy team, we sat down and had a, a working session with these guys over a couple of hours. Included there was an assistant to the chairman of Huawei, the head of strategy, you know, a new team member that has just joined from one of the top three banks in China. You know, so you had very senior people in the room. And unlike what we find in a lot of the West, where there was an assumption that they knew what was going to happen, these guys were very open and very willing to say, tell us what we don't know. Give us the perspective. Help us learn. Help us be better at uh, exporting Huawei's technology for financial services to the rest of the world. And that's quite impressive because they're sort of learning where they don't know stuff. Whereas in the West, you will see incumbent bankers that have ignored the fintech phenomenon they said, no, no, it's not going to change here, you know. And that's a fairly typical response that you see in most industries when they're faced with this sort of disruption. But what we saw at Huawei was actually the opposite, a very openness to this and saying, help us understand the rate of change. Help us understand, you know, where there are opportunities, weaknesses in the system, where there are threats to the system. How can we help? How can we present this information uh, offshore in in such a way that will improve uh, Huawei's brand? Um, But again, this seems to be a cultural shift or cultural advantage that we see generally in China. You know, you also visited Ping'an, and you visited WeBank, and I've been to both those organizations numerous times as well. One of the most amazing examples of this adaptability is WeBank's control room, which, you know, I've it was, never... It was amazing, yeah. I've 
you know, there is no other bank in the world that has at the heart of their business, you know, this technology-based control room that can deploy and measure and monitor what is going on with the bank in real time across the nation, you know. Talking about the fact that they can see a data trend, they can see the way that people are utilizing their products and see an opportunity for a new product and within, you know, six to 11 days deploy an entirely new product from scratch built based on this emergent behavior. We can see them tweaking marketing campaigns in real time, location by location, because of responsiveness to certain messaging. You know, you see cybersecurity threats being handled in real time, cloud load balancing in real time. It was, it's insane to see this, you know. And the way they deliver it, you know, you walk into a conference room that looks like a bunch of whiteboards, and then they talk <laughs> about their control center. You're seeing it on the screen, all the different things they're monitoring, you know, 206 million customers, even deeper than that when you take into effect all the relationships they have. But but then they, they push a button and two windows open up, and you see the control room in real time where you see these people. And there's a lot of empty desks, and they said, oh, but wait, and – you know, during the time of our meeting, there was something that happened in the system. Immediately, people come, fix it in real time, and get it up. They're down to, I think it was 99.99996% uptime. I think they said it was two minutes during last year. That is an insane capability, but it's also because they've invested. I think they have five um, different servers that back each other up, which also, as you mentioned, allows them to bring on new ideas, to bring on new updates in real time because they've already tested on a server that serves their customers. So they use one of the servers that's not being used at that time. They're able to test it in a real-time environment. And as you said, in 11 days, go from ideation to implementation, where they do 20 to 30 product updates a month. I'd be challenged to know how many other financial institutions in the world have that robust of an innovation and deployment culture. But what was interesting also when we were meeting with the people at Huawei was that this is all brought together with many of the companies. They all interact and interrelate in such a way that data is served to each company, not on a personal level, but in a way that makes it so it's not only transportable, but effective. And I think when we went with a financial services group, you know, it's clear that what they're trying to do is really take the innovation and the R&D development, R&D space, deploy it in the financial services space out west. They, they would very much, as uh, WeBank and others want to do, would love to be able to find solutions that the West will buy. One of the challenges, and uh, we need to be completely transparent on this, is that Huawei is under pressure from the U.S. and other Western allies around how this data is being used and the capabilities that the Chinese government may have if people buy West uh, technology from China. With that said, they asked us, how can we deal with the issue of trust with the West? And I, I think, you know, you gave a couple examples of how that can be deployed. Can you, can you give an example of what you thought they could do? I can't remember the examples. I think I think it was around. I think it was around the partnerships that they had. That, oh, okay. that they yeah, may. Yeah. It's not like white labeling, but but they may not be yeah, able to be the yeah. the front and center company 
Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, joint operations and working with respected partner, getting sort of a transferability of trust was one strategy. Again, they've been beat on PR over most of this stuff. You know, I actually don't believe that the monitoring issues and feedback to the Chinese system is as acute a problem as represented in Western media. But I do think that Huawei represents a significant threat on core technologies like 5G, where they're clearly well ahead of most Western companies. And so I do think there's been a bit of PR to sort of try and balance the risk to Western companies in respect to that. But 5G is such a small part of their tech. And as you learn, the smart city stuff they're doing, the smart energy grid stuff they're doing, you know, the uh, autonomous vehicle technologies, the dedicated chips, like the Atlas AI chip. Oh my gosh, yeah. So I think there is an element of the fact that I don't think the rest of the world sees they have phones and they have some pretty impressive phones, you know, but they don't necessarily understand the depth of Huawei's technology capability. And they're much more like Apple in respect to the investment in in technology changes uh, that we see systemically or maybe, you know, sort of a Google moonshot type projects. The breadth of what they're involved in is pretty impressive. So I do think that if people are able to understand this depth of capability and the potential social good from many of these Huawei investments in R&D, I think that would obviously serve them very well from a a general PR perspective. Well, it's interesting. It was my final takeaway was that, you know, while there may be issues with China, with Huawei, with all the companies we visited, the reality, if you look at them and what's actually happening as opposed to who's doing it, I don't think anywhere that I've seen in the world has the use of data been used in such a broad context with so many solutions built off of this in such a way that basically it is very much, and we don't ever hear about this in the West, where there's so many good things that come out of this in this country. So we can talk about the bad forever, but I think what was really interesting is you keep on mentioning is that the deployment for the ability of the common good, for lowering costs, for certainly expanding the availability of things, and we won't get into healthcare here, but the capabilities of using this data that's already being used in China for healthcare, for logistics, for delivery of fresh food, everything, the potential just is mind-blowing. I think that's the takeaway that I had was that yeah, I had a little bit of a, a perception of what I thought China was going to be. And, 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 you know, a lot of it was through you that the capabilities, but whatever capabilities I imagined, you can take that and make it exponential, what we actually saw, both at Huawei as well as all the fintech companies. But I think Huawei was a great place to start the week with you and Jay Kemp from our team at Provoke to be able to actually be exposed to what is possible. And yes, just as, again, a a clear disclosure is that Huawei did fund us as media members to see what's being done, but in no way, shape, or form did they guide what we write, what we say. They never, they aren't editing your podcast, my podcast. They didn't edit my article for the financial brand that got a lot of great responses and a couple that were very negative about what's going on in China and what may be going on at Huawei. But I think what's important is we've done this all on our own. We were not given any, nobody gets any editing rights or they can't shut us down. But I think what was interesting is it opened our eyes to the possibility. 
And, you know, you write about this continuously. You're working on a new book. Can you want to tell us a little bit about your new book you're working on? Well, that actually leads in quite well because a lot of what you're talking about here is Shenzhen in particular, but China's economy um, generally. They are approaching the innovation around technologies, the creation of new technologies and the deployment of technologies for the social good of the Chinese nation and for the benefit of the economy. In the West, we spend a great amount of time debating whether or not not technology is going to be good and then have a really hands-off approach to the way technology impacts the market. We let capitalism take care of that. In China, it's a very ordered, systemic approach to deploying technology for the benefit of their citizens. So this leads quite nicely into the book. The new book I'm working on, it's book number seven. It should be out in uh, June, July. It's called The Rise of Techno-Socialism. And it looks at three key, very socially disruptive constructs. That is massive inequality that we see developing or having developed in the West over the last few years. Not just in the West, actually, but sort of globally in, in more developed economies. We see artificial intelligence and the potential of automation wreaking havoc on traditional employment structures and industries and so forth. And we see at the same time the emerging issues around climate change like what we've seen in Australia with the bushfires recently that are going to increasingly create um, concern potentially social unrest and so forth so you put all this together and we have the potential for massive social disruption and if we just treat it like we do today and just leave it to chance to resolve or say, well, the market will fix it, the reality is it's going to descend into chaos and potentially, based on historical uh, uh, sort of precedence, potentially revolution as a result of this unrest. If, though, we take a more structured approach to the future of society, we start designing society, we start factoring in artificial intelligence and the likelihood of it's going to impacting jobs, for example, and start retraining people and looking after that. If we say the cost of leaving a person on the streets of Los Angeles or New York or San Francisco as a homeless person is dramatically more expensive than actually providing them with housing, which we can now you know, 3D print a, a small apartment in 24 hours for the cost of about $3,000 or $4,000 instead of the thirty-five dollars to $40,000 of annual servicing, policing and healthcare costs for a homeless individual. You've got a dramatic improvement to society by just saying that we need to be more socially conscious, by designing uh, policy that integrates this technology with minimal impact or maximum positive impact is probably a better way to put it in society is key. And I think the increased social awareness that's come through social media, through improvements in communication, through an awareness to the risks around climate change and mobilization of forces around that, you know, protests globally and things, this increased social awareness is going to put more and more pressure on governments to say we are governing for the people. We're doing something for the citizenship. So I think these three forces will coalesce to produce significant political and policy change at a nation level. And I think it's the 
technology can solve an abundance of problems if used with purpose to address those issues. If we leave it to the free market, we just won't get there. You know, the tragedy of the commons concept is that, you know, we are using resources that benefit us individually as companies or in individual citizens working for these companies or in these economies, but we don't have a collective approach to what it means for the earth as a whole on a long-term basis. You know, We tend to be looking for those quarterly results and things like that rather than saying, what sort of a world are we going to create for our grandchildren? So that's what I'm trying to address in the book. How do we bridge that gulf of understanding and behavior that has created the problems we have today? And how is technology going to be useful to solve those problems at a global basis in terms of social responsibility and consciousness and how those three forces I mentioned, AI, climate and inequality, are sort of forcing us to this point of real structural change at a societal level. Well, it's always great to talk to you. We could go on forever and and usually do. It was also great to be able to travel with you for a couple of days in China and get your perspectives on what the environment's like and, and to understand more about what I didn't know before going there. You're a great traveling companion, Jim. Well, thank you. And I'm, I'm, I'm certainly dying to go back again, I can tell you. What I love about traveling with you is, you know, you're seeing the world anew, you know, and for someone of our vintage, you know, to have that excitement about learning new things, I think that's a great quality, Jim, and I think more people should endeavor to encourage that. Well, as you know, that's one of my mantras is to disrupt yourself and continuous learning. And, you know, I'm lucky enough that with Provoke that I schedule my speaking engagements across the world in old parts of countries and new parts of countries with four days to immerse myself in a culture. And and certainly it's not enough, but every single stop I've made over the last four years with Provoke, it's been an enlightening experience that I always come away with a learning that's far beyond what I had before that. And Something to be said for the uh, U.S. educational system for not giving me that up front, but also I, I hadn't pursued it in the past, but uh, now I had the opportunity. But again, thank you very much for being on the show and recapping our, our China trip. We actually are doing uh, back-to-back podcasts between uh, what we saw at Huawei as well as we saw the financial technology companies we visited with Matt Dooley and, and David Wallace. And again, it was great to travel with you and Jay, and uh, hopefully you'll do it again. Absolutely. Take care. Take it easy. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform. Just raised a top 10 banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. Also be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research that we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Bridget Coyne, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, have a great week. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.